So we're nearing the end of our series in pursuit of a healthy church. And even though our typical approach on Sundays is uh, we, we it's, it's called expository, where we take a book of the Bible, we go down the book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But recently we've been taking a more topical approach, right? Um, addressing topics like, you know, Christians in conflict, Christians and gossip, um, Christians and singleness, right? How singleness is both a, a struggle and a blessing. How to hold those kind of things in tension. Um, and this week, we, we get into the topic of dating. But with dating, uh, it's a very unique topic to be addressing uh, from the pulpit, and so a few disclaimers are uh, needed. Uh, first disclaimer is this. Uh, dating is a unique topic to address in a sermon because Scripture does not talk about dating. Anybody who tells you otherwise, right? Thus saith the Lord, here's how you must date, right? Uh, run for the hills, right? Uh, be very cautious of that. Any book that says that or any preacher that says that. The Bible does not talk about dating. And it's not Scripture's intent to give you specific instructions about dating. And yet, um, what we do know about Scripture is that it is God's sufficient word, his sufficient word for all seasons of life, for all people at all times. And that means there is something relevant in Scripture that does speak to people who are in dating relationships and face the challenge of dating relationships. Uh, my seminary professor, John Frame, he put it like this, uh, quote, Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all of life. It has all the divine words that the plumber needs and all the divine words that the theologian needs. Okay. What he means by that is that all the divine words, God's word that any individual in any season of life, any vocation needs, they're found in Scripture to live out God's will in any given context. And that goes for the plumber, uh, and that goes for the theologian. Right? But it's not as though the Bible has specific guidance on how to do plumbing. It only gives you divine words sufficient for the plumber to faithfully live out his calling as disciple, a disciple of Jesus Christ, whatever his vocational context may be. And I think a similar principle applies to dating. The Bible doesn't give us like a step-by-step -step guide on dating, um, but Scripture does speak to us in a general sense, a general counsel for anyone in a dating relationship who are also seeking to live according to God's word and his will. Okay? Uh, so this sermon will be very general in that sense, just principles that relate to dating, but it's really not uh, uh, sort of this step-by-step -step guide, specifically how to go about dating, and therefore it's going to feel a lot like we are scratching the surface, we're not answering uh, specific questions per se, but trying to discern more about God's will for us. All right, that's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is this. Um, dating is a relatively modern invention. Uh, it's something that came into existence quite recently, and that is one of the reasons why nobody, at least that I know of, have really gone about dating perfectly. I don't even know what that means. Uh, so. Uh, I'm not up here to try to tell you, um, as Christians, you must nail dating perfectly because uh, that's undefined. But the invitation here, rather, is to be wiser. Wiser in the way you generally relate to people because that will have a lot of overlap with uh, your dating uh, relationship. 
trusting that as we go to God's word, he will put a lamp onto our feet and show us, okay, here's the next step. Here's how you ought to walk. And that as we walk in that direction, we will thrive and we will flourish. Let's enter into it with that trust uh, in God's wisdom. The final disclaimer is this. Proverbs 15.22 says, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. And things about dating or things related to marriage, these are plans. And uh, without counsel, Proverbs says, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. So a lot of what I'm going to share with you today actually come from the wisdom of many advisors, not me. Um, uh, people who have influenced me, I'm very much indebted to, and I'm, and I'm really drawing a lot of this material from. For example, Les Newsom, Matt Howell, campus ministers at Reform University Fellowship, our, our denomination's uh, college ministry, where they deal with a lot of singles, a lot of people in dating relationships. Um, also various uh, counselors in the, the Christian Education Christian Counseling Education Foundation, pastors like Tim Keller, um, and maybe mixed in with that, just my limited experience uh, in counseling couples in the past eight years, whoever came through NCA. So you're getting a mixture of many advisors who have influenced me and I'm indebted to. That's my disclaimer. Nothing here is really new or new under the sun, all right? There's nothing original here. That's what I'm trying to say. And then occasionally, right, I will probably toss in there uh, something that's more of my personal pastoral encouragement to you, but it is not to be equated with the absolute, inerrant, infallible Word of God, right? uh, It's not essential doctrine is what I'm trying to say. As in, if you were to go to a different church and, and receive counsel from a different pastor, you may hear something different from what I say in certain regards, I'll qualify. When I get to that, I will qualify that. So you listen to that part with with a caveat, all right? That's my final disclaimer. Okay, here's how I want to present this to you. Um, If you recall with singleness, and if you missed that, please do listen to that because that's very foundational to what we're talking about today. With singleness, we looked at how it was, in some ways, a very, it's a season where you have very well-known struggles, but lesser-known blessings. Well-known struggles, Lesser known blessings. With dating, it's kind of the other way around. Okay, uh, you have some, you have some well known benefits, but lesser known struggles. Does that make sense? So with singleness, you have um, well known struggles, lesser known benefits. With dating, you have well known benefits, but less known struggles. But here's the thing: as we try to articulate what those struggles are in dating relationships, I think two things will happen. One, uh, we will begin to view people who are in dating relationships more with more understanding and compassion more understanding and compassion. The other thing that will happen is you begin to then see how scripture engages with us in those difficult moments, with those difficult questions and struggles we have in dating. So it's important to articulate what the problem is before we can see how scripture speaks relevantly to that, even if it's on a general level, okay? So um, here's how I wanna outline it. First part, two big parts. First part would be, why why is dating so hard? What are the struggles that uh, uh, come with dating? And secondly, uh, biblical answers to general answers to some of those difficult questions, okay? Why, why is dating so hard? And biblical answers to those hard questions. All right. Um, point number one then, okay, reason why dating is so hard. Here's the first reason. Here's the first reason why dating can be very challenging. Dating can be very challenging and very difficult because dating lacks a clear definition. Okay. Uh, when you look at Paul's letter, to the Corinthians, to Timothy, to the Ephesians. He, he mentions, 
people who are betrothed, meaning those who are engaged. He mentions people who are getting married or already married. And he also identifies the unmarried, like brothers and sisters or widows. And you see this in the letter to the Ephesians where he, he addresses for the first portion of the letter, Christians in general as disciples. But then the other, the second half, he addresses them as these identity markers, unmarried, married, parents, children, etc., etc. And with that comes behaviors, responsibilities, and roles that follow these titles and these callings, if you will. Okay. For example, husbands, you are to, uh, Paul says you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? Cherish her. Uh, show her that you you um, you're holding fast to her, and you show her that you do love her, and you love her in the way that she would feel loved. Right? Uh, you're not just speaking your own love language to them; you're understanding what their love language is and speaking that to them. Right? Husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. Paul says, respect them in the way the husband feels respected. Right? Um, uh, and, and he kind of creates this sort of complementary, therefore, relationship between the husband and the wife, their unique roles, dynamics, um, and duties and responsibilities to one another to thrive together in marriage. Now, my point is, that's all very clear and specific and articulated because marriage is well-defined. It's, very, it's a very clearly defined relationship. Okay. Um, we are to imitate the lifelong covenant that Christ has made with the church, this permanent covenant Christ has made with the church in our earthly marriage. So there's a very clear reference point that Paul gives us, for example, in Ephesians, and definition about what marriage entails and therefore clear behaviors and responsibilities for husband and wife. Scripture is not silent on that. Very clear. But see, uh, this is not the case with dating. There's no clear definition. Uh, if I ask you guys to just write on the flashcard your best definition of what dating is, and if I compare that to the answers from the folks who attend the 9.45 a.m. service, we will get if vastly different answers, if not contradicting answers, I am pretty certain. Okay. It's very difficult to define. It's very unclear as to what the universal definition of dating is, and what does that mean? When there's no clear definition of what dating is, there's no clear understanding of what a role, what the role of a boyfriend or girlfriend is, what their duties are, what their responsibilities are to one another. And, and that's one of the reasons why dating can be a very challenging uh, season, challenging uh, relationship. It's difficult to thrive in a relationship that's undefined. What would thriving look like in an undefined uh, relationship? It's, it's hard to say, if not impossible. Okay. So, so dating is not clearly defined and therefore often very hard and challenging. Having said that, right, dating does have, in modern day context, a general sort of observable phenomenon. And let me quickly give you um, the five phases that I've heard kind of explain uh, in terms of modern day dating, just so we get some description to work with and better articulate the problems or struggles that come with dating. Five phases, and these are general descriptions, not absolute. You may have had a completely different experience, that's okay. But these are five phases that a lot of counselors have seen and I've noticed in a lot of couples. The five, five phases in a dating relationship. Phase number one is called noticing. 
this is where you just begin to notice someone, right? Um, you realize that someone who's been an acquaintance, merely an acquaintance, um, becomes become someone you take note of more. Like you notice them as soon as they enter the room and you kind of do this awkward, like you notice them and then you look away and then you do a double take and you try not to be noticed that you're noticing. That's, that's what noticing is, right? You're noticing, but you're trying not to be noticed that you're noticing. And maybe there's this feeling that's beginning to emerge. There's this feeling of interest or perhaps uh, fondness or even attraction at that point, right? And that can move on to phase two very quickly sometimes. Uh, and phase two is seeking. You go from noticing to seeking. This is where you look them up maybe on Instagram uh, without following them, <laughs> uh, without uh, knowing that you're... you're, you're um, for lack of a better word, stalking them on Instagram and social media. Um, but this is where you, you're trying to find out more about them, um, what their way of life is like, what your mutual friends are like, what, you, what their family is like, and maybe even take some inventory of like where they appear, like place, time, location. Um, and perhaps as a way of you somehow appearing in the same time, place, location uh, to, to bump into them a bit more. You're, you're seeking them out a bit. And that leads to phase three, which is uh, from, from noticing and seeking to connecting. Connecting is where you're actually talking a bit more with that person and maybe texting with that person. You're sharing more about your day, just random facts about your day, ups and downs about your day. And, and here's the thing, you don't get tired of talking to people when you're connecting because it's very energizing and stimulating to be connecting with someone for the first time in this way. Um, but largely still happening sort of in the friend zone, if you will, technically speaking, okay? Now, here's what's kind of interesting about the connecting phase. The two people who are connecting think nobody notices that they're connecting, but everybody notices that they're connecting. And, and people are beginning to wonder, wait, what's, what's, what's going on with them two? Are they, are they a thing now? Are they going out? Are they an item now? People are beginning to wonder when the, the people who are actually connecting may think, oh, nobody knows. We're being super discreet. When in fact, everybody knows. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the phase of connecting. And, and that tends to lead to phase four, which is um, asking. Someone asks the other person, can I ask you out on a date? Now, uh, this, is, this is Pastor John speaking now. Okay. Um, this is not the inerrant word of God, but it's your pastoral encouragement. Uh, I think it's really important that in something as murky as dating, that at the least when you ask someone out, you use the word date. Can I ask you out on a date and make that crystal clear? Uh, that There's a lack of clarity as is. And it's not a good idea to add to that confusion by beating around the bush. And I want to especially uh, encourage our brothers. If you're interested in someone, and you've gone through the connecting, it's important you don't skip the connecting part and jump to the asking, okay? Uh, if you've gone through the connecting part, then ask the sister out on a date and call it a date. And be the one to ask and be the one to risk being rejected. Uh, be the pioneer, the adventurer, the brave, the courageous, the one who takes the bullet, be the man. Don't, don't leave the other person, you know, playing detective, you know, what is going on here? Like, what is this? What should I call this? Right? Make it crystal clear. And sisters, 
right? It's one date. Uh, you can say yes or no, but the boundaries are one date. And if you want, you can go on a second date. And if you want, you can go on a third date. But when it's articulated this way, the intention is clear. I'm asking you out on one date, then boundaries are clear. No long-term commitment. It gives both people in the room at any given point to say, "Hey, I enjoy spending time with you,、um, and it, you know, I would really like to just stay as friends、uh, and communicate. This is as far as you go, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? And that kind of clarity can save you from a lot of confusion and frustration and often heartache. Okay. Now, as the dates go on, the connecting builds. It leads to the next phase, phase five. Usually, and that's what I would call exclusivizing. Right, that's not a word; I made that up completely.、Uh, this is the phase where one person asks, often out of frustration, "What are we?、Uh, where are we going with this? What do we tell people that we are? What do we tell our parents、uh, that we are?" And, and that maybe,、uh, if it is, let's say, the woman asking the question, then. It leads the it nudges the the man sort of to awkwardly ask,、um, "Do you want to be my girlfriend? Like, is is that a title we want to use? Are we going to be boyfriend girlfriends?" And if the answer is yes, you you become official. And I think what that really means is you become exclusive,、uh, meaning you're interacting with one another in a way that others don't get to interact with you. Right? It, it's a it's not a shared. Relationship. It's not a shared reality. It's it's an exclusive reality, and then that that gives you an even more intimate setting to build your connection with one another. Okay, and then after that, right, a period of time,、um, this could potentially lead to getting engaged, and then getting married, and then having your funeral, and that's your life, right?、Uh, in summer, in basic, right?、Um, now the very important question. We have to ask: Is this at what point during these five phases was there a clear definition of what this relationship between these two people actually is? And the answer is engagement.、Uh, prior to engagement, there was really no clarity. Or、okay. you might say, no, when they decided to become exclusive, that's when they committed to each other. That that means they don't get to see other people or date other people. There's a clear definition because there's a clear commitment. Is there now?、Uh, I mean, what has really changed before and after phase five of exclusivizing, right? Of becoming committed. Because even with this perhaps spoken agreement to be. Dating each other exclusively—that really only lasts until one of them no longer wants to. There's no covenant, there's no promise that keeps them exclusively bound to one another for life, and it is therefore perfectly within that person's right to say at any given point, "I no longer want to date you." And I'm going to consider dating someone else, and that is not even a sin. So even though there is some semblance of commitment, some semblance of exclusivity, you have to understand: in a dating relationship, and this is what makes it so difficult. In a dating relationship, it remains a low-level commitment and an and an undefined, 
potentially short-term uh, period of exclusivity. Because there's always, in the dating relationship, there's always this back door with a bright red exit sign uh, that anyone can choose to walk out, walk through at any given moment, and they will be within their right to do that. So in dating, you're working with a level of commitment and exclusivity that really any single unmarried person can enjoy with any close friend. And in that sense, nothing's really changed. See, the, the only time that a romantic relationship becomes crystal clear, and maybe prior to that, it can become clearer and clearer and clearer, but when it becomes crystal clear is engagement. And, and that is when scripture Scripture begins to recognize your romantic relationship as well. It's when someone is betrothed. That's the biblical term for being engaged. Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 7. Before that, before getting engaged, everyone is single, according to the Scriptures. That's the Bible's definition. Everyone not engaged, not married, are single according to the Bible. It doesn't matter if you've been dating for five years or 10 years or 20 years or never went on a single date, you're equally single in the eyes of God. So this is one of those things that makes dating so challenging. Uh, it leaves you with this huge question mark, and, and it grows as time passes, and this feeling of uncertainty as to, okay, how much faithfulness am I supposed to put in this? How much devotion am I supposed to give to this? How much sacrifice am I supposed to make for this? There's a question mark. And so it's not uncommon for experience, uh, for example, uh, for people to experience that their devotion to their vocational pursuits, academic pursuits, their devotion to their parents and other family commitments conflict with their commitment to their boyfriend or girlfriend. That happens a lot. Okay. Um, now, if things are aligning, it, it and, and things are kind of coming together, that's a good sign that you're headed towards engagement and marriage. That's great. But otherwise, um, you can feel a lot of friction here and, and a lot of tension and added insecurity about your future uh, in your dating relationship. Okay. So a lack of clear definition, lack of clear duties and obligations, lack of clear delineation of how devoted you're supposed to be, how much sacrifice you're supposed to make, all of these things add to um, the hardships that dating couples face, among other things. Okay. And, and I think we should first understand it and see them as that and, and be, be careful and, and uh, sensitive in the way we communicate to dating couples about their dating relationship. Not as, not as if everything is sunshine and rainbows. They're going through struggles, difficult struggles that they can't fully articulate. Um, so it's important we are understanding towards them and, and compassionate towards them and, and be a good listener and see how we can encourage them and pray for them. Now, how does the Bible answer some of these questions? Okay, again, not in a specific sense, but just even generally, how do we proceed in addressing some of these biblically? Okay, so that's the second part of this. Um, in Ephesians 5, right, in the passage we read, it says, Therefore, and this is quoting Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The thing I hope you can notice immediately here is this. 
the presence of clarity. The presence of clarity in terms of what changes and in clarity in terms of the definition. First, what changes? That you leave the past structure in which you are primarily belonging to your family unit under your parents and you form an entirely new primary family identity with your spouse, the one with whom you are now becoming one flesh. And this is what scripture calls leaving. This leaving that takes place doesn't mean you cut off ties completely with your parents. It just means it's no longer your primary identity, your marriage is. And along with that, the cleaving that takes place in marriage. And it's only to the degree that you're ready to leave well that you're ready to really cleave well to the other person. It kind of asks us to count the cost in in transitioning from uh, being single to being no longer single. There's this leaving that precedes cleaving to one another. And that could be relationally leaving, emotionally leaving, financially leaving, right? Physically moving out kind of leaving, right? And therefore you can cleave in all of these ways with your new one flesh uh, marital partner. What's clear is that uh, there must be this clear transition that takes place that brings you into this covenantal, lifelong, romantic relationship, and that is God's design for romance. God's design is for romance to be placed safely and permanently in that lifelong marital covenant, and therefore bring you into this radically new relational identity that you did not previously have, that you can only gain now in marriage, in marriage. And that's the only place, guys, where God explicitly and clearly blesses your romance. Uh, It's the only place where romance is clearly thriving in Scripture, in the lifelong marital context. Uh, Without this radical change from being, being under our parents and now leaving that and being cleaving to one another, um, you still have this unfinished fireplace, right? And, and you feel a little bit like you're building a fire, but you don't know where to put it. And over time, the fire just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but you don't know where to put the fire because you're not building a fireplace. Marriage is the fireplace. Where, as Usher put it, you can let it burn. Okay. Just let it burn. If dating is to succeed, or if dating is to thrive, right? Well, God shows us, well, work with these definitions. Work with these duties and responsibilities and these roles. It ought to, dating therefore ought to lead us to consider the potential possibility of marriage and advance us towards that with, without needlessly delaying. Uh, so we gain, sooner rather than later, clarity in what needs to change in my life uh, in my life, in order for, for me to have a clear sense of what my role is, what my responsibilities are. You're not meant to. God did not design romance to, to withstand the uncertainty long term. Right? That's, that should be a temporary phase. Um, he did not intend for people engaging in romantic relationships to withstand this long-term season of uncertainty and question marks, but to quickly bring that fire into the fireplace safely. And this resolves another challenge, uh, another difficulty that dating often presents, and that is how dating often creates this uh, unhelpful illusion 
that we already belong to the other person when we really don't. Um, what modern people have done, I think, with, with dating is this, because dating is challenging, right? It is difficult, it is trying, often confusing, as a way of remedying that, seeking to remedy that, people have infused into the dating relationship things can only safely belong in marriage, in a lifelong commitment to someone. And that kind of ends up making a dating relationship a, a pseudo-marriage, a mini-marriage, an imitation of, of marriage, um, where you, in a sense, it's kind of like how my, my kids play doctor. You pretend you have something real, right, when you don't. But the, here's the difference. When my kids play doctor, they don't play with real scalpels. When you're dating and playing marriage, you're playing with real things. And that's dangerous. When you're entitled to none of it, you behave as if you're entitled to all of it. And that's the danger, the dangerous struggle that comes with a dating relationship. So simply understanding God's will for our romance, just understanding that definition alone can clear some air when it comes to this area. It will resolve the false sense of entitlement we have towards our romantic partners, our dating partners, our boyfriends and girlfriends. Uh, this false sense of entitlement to each other's time. Like, you should, you ought to spend more time with me uh, the, and the best times with me, all the holidays with me, more than with your parents or other close friends. I own that time. Uh, or feeling entitled to each other's future direction. You ought to uh, orient your future direction around me or around us um, so we would ultimately work out when there's no such obligation to someone you're not engaged to um, to do that. Um, and of course, the, the sense of feeling entitled to each other's bodies. You should fulfill me sexually uh, because, because we sort of belong to one another. When truth is, uh, you have not promised to belong to one another, and therefore you should not give your body uh, to that person you have not promised your whole life to. You, you don't give your whole body to someone you have not promised your whole life to. That's the biblical principle. And so... Paul, that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, right? Treat men as fathers and brothers, women as mothers and sisters, in all purity. It means when it comes to relating to the different genders, uh, you are to treat each other like you're all siblings in Christ, family members in Christ, okay? There's only one way to physically, properly interact with someone you're not married to, and, and that is as if they're your siblings. So... If it would be inappropriate for you to do it with a sibling, then it would be inappropriate for you to do it with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, that is scripture standards. So if, for example, if it's inappropriate, and people are different, right? That's why you can't draw a hard line here. Uh, this is not everyone. If it's inappropriate in your mind to kiss your siblings, well, uh, or, or to travel alone with your sibling and share a bedroom with them, uh, then it's inappropriate to, to do that with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Inappropriate as in, you're imposing a false sense of entitlement on this person that does not belong to you. But you're behaving as though they do. Okay, now, if that seems like way too strict and limiting and, um, and you feel as though your relationship, for those of you who may be doing to your boyfriend or girlfriend, it's deserving of more or enti you're entitled to more, I would say, great, prove that. 
Uh, prove that by moving forward with what God has set forth, with engagement, becoming betrothed, and married. Finish the fireplace. Finish building the fireplace. And don't just say, we're entitled to hold on to all this fire. Prove it. Show your partner, show yourself, that you have a fireplace to put the fire in. But if you're not ready to do that, you're not ready to consider marriage, and, and you're not ready to sort of reorient your, your future direction, right? completely leave, in a sense, from emotionally from your parents, right? you're not, then you're not quite ready to cleave. And therefore, until that point, um, you must remain in God's boundaries for singles. Now, a culture might say, well, how about, what if I want to try out this relationship um, and see if marriage would work by cohabitating, living together, moving in with one another? That's a common uh, practice in our culture today, right? The verdict is out on that. Uh, New York Times, not too long ago, right, published findings that show couples who cohabitate before marriage have a higher chance of divorce than couples who don't. Turns out cohabitating is not a, a, a good tryout for marriage. It causes it to fall out. It's a fallout for marriage. Why? Because, see, if you get accustomed, if you get accustomed to enjoying the benefits of marriage without the covenant of marriage, is that going to strengthen the covenant when you actually make one or weaken it? It's going to weaken it, right? Um, but if the merging of two lives and especially the sexual union of two people is an expression of the marital covenant, a lifelong covenant, a permanent covenant, then it becomes what God intended it to be, this beautiful, incredibly powerful celebration and reminder that you safely belong to this person you're giving yourself to. And that is your husband or your wife. So, Godly boundaries, you see, they're not there to be this archaic, outdated means of killing your joy, right? suppressing your desires. No, it's giving you a roadmap to where your joys and desires can thrive and be made secure. And where these, this beautiful thing, especially your sexuality, something that is so sacred, created by God, powerful, right? would be, therefore, handled with care. That's why God gives us the boundaries he gives us. So as we begin to unpack the implications of what God has laid out, what he has defined, it, it begins to overlap with how we perceive dating relationships and how we should proceed in those relationships and what should be pursued in those relationships and what should be refrained in those relationships as well. You begin to gain some clarity as you look to the clarity that God did provide us in the scriptures. Now, I want to just close on this final note, which I think is the most important, that, that all of this matters ultimately because your relationship with God matters ultimately. It's, this is still about your relationship to God. If you have faith in your Lord and Savior and you've and you're truly walking in step with him in life and in death, and he's your hope in life and in death, then, then his will, his wisdom, his guidance should be observable in the most important human relationship you engage in on this earth. Meaning, he ought to be not just Lord and Savior over your soul, but Lord and Savior over your relationship. 
And then you ought to be able to say, here's how we are as boyfriend and girlfriend following Jesus and treating him as our Lord and Savior who lords over every aspect of our relationship. If your discipleship in Christ is not visible in your most important human relationship on earth, your romantic relationship, in what sense is God present and active in your life? We could say we, we profess him to be Lord, but if it's not present, applicable, relevant, to your most intimate human relationship, in what sense is he truly present there? And I know that sounds kind of strong, but because we're dealing with a strong problem here, aren't we? The potential problem of godlessness, this, this mistaking our godliness and godliness and confusing the two. So here's where we should hear God's call to rediscover, regain what his will for us is, and also what his what his grace is like for us because we all fall short in this, right? Go back to what I said earlier. Um, no one has done, no one has done singleness perfectly. No one has done dating perfectly. No one has done marriage perfectly. Uh, we need God's grace and therefore it's about direction. It's about changing course, recalibrating your compass so you head in the right direction. It's not about perfection. It's always about direction. And therefore there's always hope as we look to God's grace and for his help. And as we turn together towards God, uh, pursue more intimacy with him, more union with him, more alignment with his will, uh, as we remember what Paul says, that our final eternal identity is that we are the bride of Christ. That what fulfills us ultimately is Christ's love for the church. Not a boyfriend's love for a girlfriend or a girlfriend's love for it's ultimately Christ's love for the church that gives us true rest and satisfaction in the soul. If our rest is not there, then you will inevitably look to your dating relationship to fulfill for you the hunger for glory that only God can satisfy for you, and you'll be weighed down. You'll be bogged down by the pressure to be the perfect boyfriend, the perfect, perfect girlfriend, impress each other and impress other people who, who view your relationship to keep your relationship to be the object of glory in your life, for it to be consistently glorious in, yours, uh, in your eyes and in other people's eyes. And that's not the kind of pressure that a dating relationship can bear. It will crush your relationship, your soul, like bricks would crush, fall upon a tent with wobbly legs. It's not meant to withstand that kind of pressure and that kind of weight of glory. Only God, only Christ can withstand that for you. That's what being a Christian means. It means where we know ultimately we're engaged to be married to Christ, right, spiritually. And every single earthly marriage, mine, yours, for those of us who are married, no matter how beautiful, how serendipitous, how amazing, is simply an imitation, a limited, finite, often poor imitation of Christ's marriage to you. And that's why God established this so that our earthly marriage would be finite and temporary. One day, my wife and I will be brothers and sisters again in Christ, no longer married. But we will never be divorced. We will never be severed. We will never be separated from our union with Christ. That is what makes you who you are. And that is what infuses meaning into even our current romantic 
relationships, knowing that Jesus Christ, he's the truer and better lover of our souls. His promise to love us, for better or for worse, is truer than any human spouse's promise. Okay, just ask my wife. Uh, his promise to, to love us for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, right, is a better promise than any boyfriend or girlfriend's promise to you. And he takes his marital vow even above the ones that we imitate and make because with him, death cannot do us part. Death can't do us part. He's the real deal. We're, we're playing with the toy version of it, if you will. Really, and I say that even with reverence for marriage. So, something we'll talk about next week, something to be honored and celebrated, but compared to your marriage to Christ. It's a poor imitation. And this blessing is given to those who are called and blessed to be single. This blessing is also given to those who are called and blessed to be married. Remember that. It's given to all of us, the church of Christ, the bride of Christ. In closing, uh, if you're dating, go on dating. If you want to date someone, ask hopefully brothers, ask them on a date one day. Say yes or no. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Date to your heart's content. Date actively, date diligently. But let's do it all, as Augustine said, for the love of God. And you will do well. Do it all for the love of God, whether you date or not. Do it all for the love of God. And you will flourish in everything that you do, and you will realize what Jesus was trying to teach Peter when he said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you truly love me more than these? And in loving God, we find our answer can be yes by his spirit living inside us, reminding us of our eternal union with him. And with that, with that security, with that confidence, whether you are single or dating or betrothed or married, or become single again, know that it is well with your soul and he's still doing all things well in your life. Let that be your confidence. Let that be your motivation. And please, for those of you who are not dating, encourage those who are dating with that, if anything, but don't encourage them with, with false hopes and uh, with pressures. When, when are you going to get married? When is this going to happen? Entrust that process to God. In the meantime, encourage one another the same way you should be encouraged, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, uh, we are scratching the surface here. Uh, would you give us wisdom to continue to follow you after this and acknowledge you in all our ways, so, Lord, that you can make our path straight. Um, with the fear of the Lord and the wisdom that comes from the Lord, the counsel from the Lord, help us to navigate these very challenging terrains that we're not able to walk on our own. Lord, be with us through the valley um, and uh, let your rod and your staff comfort us and guide us. And Lord, our will indeed uh, is to, to please you and to draw near to you and to glorify you in all that we do. And let that be true for those of our brothers and sisters who are in a dating relationship. Uh, for them to turn to you in their time of need and find uh, a common place where they come together and seek to please you and glorify you in everything that they do, everything that they plan, everything they say, 
uh, Lord, help them invite you or re-invite you to be at the center of their relationship. I pray you bless them. I pray you comfort them. I pray you encourage them. And I pray that our church can be a place where they can um, uh, safely come and worship and fellowship and be encouraged with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.